In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear Saints, last Sunday, December 29th, a gunman opened fire at a church in Texas and killed two people just before they received communion. A few days earlier, on December 25th, 2019, Christmas Day, a week and a half ago, 10 Christians in Nigeria were beheaded, and ISIS released a video of them all being executed. On the same day, on Christmas, a jihadist group brutally murdered a Christian bride and her entire bridal party days before her wedding while they were traveling home. January 19, 1981, a group of terrorists called the M-19 broke into the Wycliffe Bible Translators Institute in Bogota, Colombia. And there they held hostage a man by the name of Chet Bitterman. There was a young Christian man who had a young wife and two children at home waiting for him. And the M-19 group said that all the Bible translators had to leave Columbia by 6 p.m. on February 19th, a month later, or else they would execute Chet Bitterman. And they didn't budge. On March 7th, the terrorist group shot Bitterman in the chest and left his body on a bus there in Bogota. At the beginning of the 3rd century, about 202 A.D., Emperor Septimus Severus issued an edict that it was illegal to convert to Christianity. And there was a young woman named Perpetua who was about 22 years old and she was a new mother and she had her infant son. She converted to Christianity by attending a Bible class at one of the churches. And, but since she was a convert, she was arrested and put into prison and separated from her baby. When Perpetua's father heard this, that she was going to be thrown into the arena with wild beasts to die, his heart sank and he begged her to renounce her faith in Jesus Christ, even if only temporarily, just so she could get out of that impending doom, that suffering. But she wouldn't do it. On the day of her execution, they took the men first into the arena, including a man named Satyrus, who was actually the one who taught the Bible class that Perpetua became a Christian in. And on the way into the arena to his death, he pleaded with the prison guard. But he didn't plead to let him go, to let him flee or escape or to uh, get rid of the punishment or anything like that. Rather, he implored the prison guard to receive Jesus Christ in faith. In fact, later on, we find out that that prison guard did repent and believe in Jesus and he himself suffered a martyr's death. Satyrus was left in the arena with a bull, a leopard, and a wild boar. And while he was dying, he looked at that soldier and said, Goodbye, remember me, and remember the faith. And don't let these things disturb you, but let it strengthen you. Then after that, they threw Perpetua into the arena to face a mad heifer. And while she was in the arena, the torture was so great that the crowds actually cried out, Enough! Put an end to it. And while she was half dead, 
they carried her to the gladiator and she cried out to her brother and she said, stand fast in the faith and love one another and don't let our suffering become a stumbling block to you. About 1 BC or so, Magi from the east traveled into the city of Jerusalem. And they asked King Herod where they might find the newborn king of the Jews. Now, Herod wasn't aware that there was a newborn king of the Jews, so he intended to put an end to this, to snuff out this threat. So he sent the Magi to Bethlehem to find the Christ and then report back to him. When they didn't report back to him as they agreed, he sends his soldiers down to Jerusalem to kill the infant Jesus. Now Mary and Joseph took Jesus and escaped to Egypt through the angel's intervention, as you well know. But Herod's order was to kill Jesus by killing all the little Christian boys two years old and under in Bethlehem and its vicinity. And we guess that anywhere between six and thirty baby boys Infants to two years old were ripped out of their mother's arms and away from their fathers and put to the sword. All martyrs die because they have the spirit of Jesus. These little martyrs died because Herod thought that they might literally be Jesus. Over the past five years, I've preached on this text quite a bit. And uh, when I've preached it, <clears throat> I've preached it in such a way to defend God's goodness. <clears throat> to defend his righteousness in the face of this kind of horror. But the older I get, the more and more I hear these things. My first thought isn't to get angry with God or upset with him. When I was younger, I struggled quite a bit with these questions. I wanted to resolve the philosophical conundrum in my mind of how a good and powerful God could let this happen. But there's no question of God's goodness in my mind. The scriptures are clear. God is love. His mercy endures forever. God sent his only begotten son to die in exchange for us. God submitted himself to the violence and the suffering that we see all around us. He did it to save us. He died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still sinning. He saves us through his wounds and his stripes. God is good and he is loving and he is gracious and he is merciful. And whenever I begin to doubt God's goodness, I just lift my eyes up to the cross and see the one who was lifted up for me, for my sake and for my salvation. And there I'm reminded that God is good even while we suffer at the hands of one another. So the question that comes to my mind now when I hear these things is not about God, but about me. The question that comes to my mind is this. What would I have done? Could I have made it? Could I suffer like that for Jesus' sake and be faithful unto the end? Could I have endured so much pain and anguish like they did and not renounce the faith? 
Or would I try to rationalize some way out of it and think, would I think to myself, look, well, look, the Lord knows in my heart that I love him and so who cares if I say yes or no to some terrorist or some gladiator? God knows what I really mean. Lord, can't I serve you more alive than dead, right? I have a wife, I have a child, I have a family, I have a church to go back to. In other words, would I be a coward and rationalize my denial of Jesus. I think that every Christian needs to ponder deeply and seriously consider the question of martyrdom. In fact, I don't believe you can be a Christian without considering the prospect of dying a martyr's death. Now, I'm not just saying this for shock value or to be edgy. This should be a real and a serious consideration of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus himself frequently warns his present and his future followers of a persecution that they will face, that they must constantly be ready. And the only way you can't be caught off guard is if you think about this before it happens. This thought of being persecuted for the faith and having your life put on the line for your faith in Christ is something that should cross your mind seriously at least, at least once a year. At least when this text comes up, at least one time a year. In fact, when you made your public confession of faith in the Lord Jesus, you confessed the possibility of your martyrdom and your suffering. When you were confirmed, however long ago that was, and all and every new member who has joined Zion in the past five years whom I have taught, I had you stand before the congregation. And you remember this, I, you had stood before the congregation and I asked you a number of questions and I started by repeating the words of Jesus. I said, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then I went on to ask you about your baptism, about the Trinity, about the infallible, inspired word of God, the Lord's Supper. And then I asked you this question, do you intend to live according to the word of God and in faith, word and deed to remain true to God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, even to death. And you all answered, I do, by the grace of God. And then I asked another question immediately after that, as all pastors do, saying, do you intend to continue steadfast in this confession and church and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? And again, you said, I do, by the grace of God. That's what you considered and said when you made a public confession of faith. Being a Christian is not just a club or a fun weekend activity. Being a Christian is a very, very serious thing. Think about it this way. Pretend you're, you've just boarded a plane. 
and a terrorist barges in and says, okay, I'm gonna blow up this plane in 10 minutes, but anyone who's willing to say Jesus Christ is not my savior can leave the plane freely. And you watch as people get up and leave and they're saying, my goodness, that's all we have to do is say something? It's easy. <laughs> all I have to do is say something and I'm free. I got my life back. And off they go. Well, you and I would sit there and think and look at our spouse and wonder, what are we going to do? What can we say? And a child, what do we do now? What you said when you were confirmed and when you became a member of the one holy Christian church by putting your faith in Jesus shows itself in precisely this moment. A Christian is a person who must be prepared to say, Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I will not deny him, even if it costs me my life. This is a difficult thing to think about, dear saints. I know. The only thing that can give you strength to endure this is not your willpower, or your strength. It's not your tolerance of pain or your rush of endorphins or the, the, your adrenaline or the completeness of your life and living it to the fullest. The only thing that gives you the strength to face this is the very word of God itself. This and it is, is what all the martyrs have in common. The word of God which sustains them even in these life or death moments. So I can't think of any better word of God to sustain you in this than the epistle reading for today, 1 Peter 4. Look, there, there are many things it teaches, but I'm going to uh, highlight three of them. And the first is this. Don't be surprised. We have a general set of assumptions about the Christian life. For instance, we think that our life as a Christian is generally, by default, going to be Good that this is the default mode and the Christian life is a pleasing, pleasant, and comfortable thing. And then the exception to our life is trouble and sorrow and persecution and turmoil and, and things like that. But the Bible's assumption is the opposite. The Bible assumes that the Christian life is one of suffering and suffering regularly and that joy will be the exception in life. In fact, we don't live a life of joy punctuated by suffering, but the truth is we live a life of sorrow that's punctuated by joy. And the fact that there's so much joy in your life is a testament not to the default mode of how life should be, but to the grace of God who has given you many more days of undeserved happiness. So when you get to the end of the day and it was just a normal day and without any great tragedy or suffering, then, then you should be surprised at that. When you go to bed at night and say, well, nothing horrible has happened. This is amazing. I'm, I'm surprised by this. I'm joyful. But when suffering comes, listen to the words of St. Peter. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Expect it. As though something, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. The second thing is this, rejoice 
insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, when you suffer for the name of Jesus, you should be happy beyond compare because you know that no matter how and where and when you suffer, you never suffer alone. Jesus is with you. And you know that you have been made worthy to suffer for the precious name of Christ, which you gladly bear. When you suffer because you are a Christian, you're being marked as his. It means the world sees you on his side, part of his team, part of his family. And if you're worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, then he considers you worthy to be glorified with Christ. If your dear Lord gives you a cross to carry, then you rejoice. Because he will also give you a tomb to walk out of. This is the power that God gave to the martyrs that those who join Christ in their suffering in this life will also join Christ in his glory in the life to come. And finally, you learn this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The greatest promise the Bible gives is that Christ has died and forgiven all of your sins, that they're all taken away, erased from the memory of your dear Father in heaven who will never recall them again through the bitter suffering and death of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the chief promise of Scripture. But right next to it is this wonderful promise from 1 Peter 4, the promise that on the day you face persecution, God will give you an added measure of the spirit of glory and of God, that this spirit is the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is saying here is if you don't think you're strong enough to die as a martyr, if you don't think you have the faith of the martyrs, you probably don't, and certainly don't, but you don't have to be strong enough on your own. God won't sit idly by and watch and wonder, looking down, saying, look, I wonder what they're going to do. He, no, he will move, he will act, and he will come to you. He'll send his Holy Spirit to you to rest upon you and give you strength. It was the Holy Spirit who gave you faith in Christ in the first place, and he will sustain it even in the moment that the world tries to take that faith away. God will not leave you or abandon you on that day. He will strengthen you like he did for all of those before you. So before closing, remember this. The world persecutes those who have faith in Jesus, who have the spirit of Jesus. Those who trust in Christ are scorned and held in contempt. The world kills, actually kills those who believe in Jesus and his word. We're considered fools and ostracized by this fallen world. And yet you, dear Christians, are blessed in the sight of your dear Father in heaven. And you should consider yourselves fortunate because the spirit of glory, the spirit of God himself rests upon you. In your baptism, you were given that Holy Spirit. And he will help you in every tribulation to not lose the faith. And he will give you strength by reminding you of the forgiveness of all of your sins. So don't fear what the world can do, do to you. 
Endure whatever persecution and trials come your way. Make a good confession of the faith even while dying. And remember that no matter how much the world wants to rip you away from Christ and His Word, the only thing their weapons can do is drive you closer into the arms of your dear Father in heaven. The faithful Christian who closes his eyes in death here will open those same eyes to see the face of their dear Lord forever. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.